0: It's almost like the rest of the world is trying to live out a degrown grown world, and the US and the Western apparatus is keeping the world from doing that.
1: The concept of degrowth is all about creating more resilient communities and food systems in a rejection of that capitalist obsession with economic growth. It's a concept that Jamie Tyberg has spent a lot of time thinking about. Jamie is a community organizer in New York City whose work centers around decolonization. And on today's episode of the Food Futures podcast, we're
0: lucky to have the researcher and baker Lexi Smith in conversation with Jamie about how to incorporate tenets of degrowth into our everyday lives. Here's Jamie and Lexi. Hi, Jamie. Hi, nice I'm just to, eating my banana. Nice to see
1: you. Good, fresh, fresh fruit in the morning is a is a good idea. I just had half a banana on a piece of bread with cashew butter.
0: Mm. We've
1: never actually spoken in real life before, but we've corresponded, and I think that we've found that we um, share uh, outlooks and and interests and goals. Um, And it's funny that we can do that just through sort of sharing imagery and and texts on on social media. Um, And in that sense, I think that, you know, to to begin this conversation, it's important to note that there is a lot of value to the way that we can sort of share information online um and transmit that information through images and through words um in addition to to action so i guess to begin you know i read a piece that you wrote this summer um, about that sort of laid out what the concept of degrowth is and how it is a pathway to decolonization and, um, you know, you were the first person I ever sort of saw use that term, degrowth. And I think similarly to when you first saw it, it like really struck me because as a word and as a concept, it was so clear um, and kind of encapsulated a lot of these ideas that people are, are thinking about um, as a kind of methodology towards a goal that we're also thinking about. And I wanted to ask you to kind of you know, introduce us a little bit to what the concept of degrowth is, um, how you came to know it, um, and how you feel like your role as an activist plays into sharing that information um, you know, as both a teacher and someone who engages with, with a public and a community directly
0: so a little bit i guess background of what brought me to degrowth or what i was doing when i discovered it um i've been organizing in new york for about like five to six years now and i'm beyond fortunate to have been trained by some of the most aggressive and strategic organizers in the city um the people who are deeply aware of the needs of the average New Yorker um, and are therefore proposing the necessary structural reforms, uh, which are still reforms, but they're ones that are designed to expose the irrationality the of the current system, um, which is really significant in raising consciousness and something that degrowth is inherently involved in. Um, So because of this training, I was always taught the difference between strategy and tactic for one, and two, to always identify our targets in whatever we're doing. Um, And in defining strategy and tactic, you have your goal, which for me is decolonization of the United States of America. Um, and then your strategy is the path that you take to achieve that goal. Um, and then your tactics are your smaller, various short term concrete action items that you take to advance that strategy. So, with that in mind, for me, like thinking about decolonization and decolonizing this country as a goal, I was thinking about like what strategy would be most useful. Um, in achieving that goal and what strategy would allow us to, I guess, generate the most effective tactics. Um, And for me, that was degrowth, something that says that we have to break with what has been sold to us as the universal truth of infinite growth. Um, And so here, I think it's important to define that growth um, because growth means so many things and it's you know usually associated as a positive thing but when i talk about growth um, i'm talking about the industries that justified and continue to to justify different forms of slavery for the sake of an infinite supply of enslaved free labor Um, when i talk about growth i mean the institutions that demanded genocide and and settler colonialism, particularly here in the U.S. and Israel, um, for the sake of infinite land expansion um, and resource domination, something that is, you know, inherently related to food. Um, And I'm talking about the growth when they say, like, the economy must keep growing, um, that a growing economy is good and healthy. Um, But what does that mean? Like, what does the infinite growth of an economy mean when like, war is better for the economy than peace. When, like, systemic death um, and not people not having health care and having to pay for their medicine is better for the economy than the reproduction of life. Um, I mean, our ecosystems are literally collapsing for the sake of this infinite growth. Um, so, in order to decolonize, we have to degrow these institutions, um, we have to interfere and stop them from ex- expanding. And undo the damage they've inflicted, um, and we also have to degrow the ideology like within ourselves um, and our habits of infinite consumption, um, and you know the the ideology of infinite growth that's been ingrained in all aspects of individual and collective life. Um, so to sum this up, degrowth um, ecologically it means that we would do everything that we can to reduce. Um, the impact of our production and consumption on the biosphere. And socially we would organize ourselves and our society around the principles of care, um, around reciprocity and interdependence. Um, it would be a world where it's not just that social interests would be placed above the economic interest, but that what defines and measures economic interests would be totally different.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, when you say it, when you, when you sort of lay it all out, it makes so much sense that this should be our mode of operating in the world. You know, it is still sort of utilizing survival, like human survival and, and flourishing as a kind of goalpost. But what it's doing, you know the what separates it from a sort of capitalist way of thinking is that it acknowledges that in order for humans to thrive, um, ecology, land, all humans need to all all life needs to thrive. Um, this kind of melding of nature and and people, this this redefinition of society. Um, it makes me think of, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this word, but I'm curious if you've heard of oikos, the the concept of sort of, it, it's a Greek word, but Jason Moore kind of termed it as a way of um, seeing land and those who live on it as um, reciprocally connected. and um, And actually in his, description of it, he talks about how once you give something a name, it is easier to see. And you and I had talked about the Octavia Butler quote, um, referencing the same thing where when you give something a name, we can better understand it. And it feels like degrowth as a name is both an incredibly clear, you know, literal translation of a, a concept that should be inherent to to us operating in the world but also a call to action when you kind of break it down um, that is really in direct contrast to everything that we have been taught which is as you said this quote unquote um, universal truth that growth is good Um, and you had mentioned just now and in your piece these sort of three tenets of a a kind of methodology of degrowth that would um, help us achieve this destruction of that untrue truth, which are autonomy, sufficiency, and care. And um, I was wondering if you could kind of give us like a little bit more information about or or just um, describe a little bit what you mean by those things. You had said something really kind of mind-blowing to me in your piece that was so simple about care, which is this idea that um, to take care is a masculine concept and to caretake is a feminine concept. And, you know, again, language is so vital to our understanding of how we operate in this world and even describing what we mean by care in that way, instead of, you know, the meme of self-care, something like that I think is really important. So maybe you could just sort of talk to us about your words
0: a little bit. Yeah. Um, people love to come for the term itself. Um, they're like degrowth is not going to be successful and it's not going to be effective because the term is just wrong, it's unsettling, it's X, Y, and Z. Um, but like you were saying, I love the term. I think it, you know, front and center names the target which is growth and what we need to do with it, which is, you know, the prefix D whether that it's removing something or, you know, decreasing the amount of something. Um, I think it better challenges our like, commonly accepted notions. Um, and it, that's also just the business that we're in, which is really counter propaganda, you know, in the age of growth. Um, what are we trying to unsettle here and unlearn more importantly? Um, And the idea itself, like you were saying, you know, like the principles, like sufficiency and care autonomy, like the ideas that degrowth is promoting are not new. Um, It's, you know, it borrows elements from other sciences, other theory, um, and the history in which, you know, it was developed, but it is a new word. And I think degrowth, particularly for me is, effective because it's really a task for those in the global North, like in the overdeveloped world. Um, A lot of the principles of degrowth, like autonomy and sufficiency, like autonomy is, well, I'll come back to that, but all those are, you see it in practice in other parts of the world. You see it actually within the United States, um, you know, among the colonized communities, Where it is lacking and what really must be degrown is the influence and the impact of like white supremacy and um, the power that white Western world holds over the rest of the world. It's almost like the rest of the world is trying to live out a degrown world. And the U.S. and the Western apparatus is keeping the world from doing that. So really, when we're talking about degrowth and what we have to degrow, it's it's the people that invented growth. It's the people that um, and the institutions and the you know schools of thought that sell this idea that we must keep consuming, that we must keep producing, that um, we must. Measure growth by how things are destroyed versus you know how things are nourished. Um, like why does the GDP increase when a river is polluted because some nearby factory um, is increasing its quarterly wa- earnings, versus when that river stays clean and provides clean drinking water for its you know nearby residents. Uh, mm-hmm
1: right it's that you know inherent sort of um contradiction between capital growth and ecological health and it calls to mind how important it is to acknowledge the intractable relationship of land to conversations around the economy and to conversations around capital land is valuable you know Land is an asset, and so when we peel one layer back from any sort of colonialist pursuit, including those that are continuing to this day, as you mentioned, um, occupied Palestine being you know top of mind often, um, agriculture is right there, and labor is of of the local population is right there and it becomes a asset of generally the um northern white man to uh, attain and then profit off of and sort of not and and the lack of consideration that is given to the um the well-being of the local population and the local land is kind of like taken for granted as we understand colonialism. But what's not considered is the fact that this system of, of nations and um, ideas, economy versus, versus land are all interdependent and interconnected. And so when we think about something like degrowth, and the way that even the word denotes loss, um, you know, D, losing, things going down, things going away, people losing their their comforts and their conveniences. Um, it is the same way that, that we don't consider the externalities of our um, industrial operations throughout the world. You know, so it makes me think of um, I mean, the Green Revolution is a a really relevant and um, favorite sort of reference of mine, which was I mean, I could talk about this on its own for for an hour, but just to give a little background, it's I think a perfect example of um, the necessity of of degrowth. It was a um, period in the '60s um, when a guy named Norman Borlaug developed this hybrid wheat in Mexico, um, funded by the Rockefellers who had ties to the White House, who um, sort of linked up with the Mexican government to create a program that would feed, that would lift Mexico out of poverty. Um, It was on the heels of the revolution. They, everyone had a vested interest in avoiding civil unrest. So they're like, okay, we will develop crops that can feed a hungry nation and can also occupy the campesinos and also bring them sort of in closer ties with the state. So that was the original idea. Um, and then it, and it was and it can kind of be seen as a small-scale version of um, humanitarian aid, or, or of of political bargaining being disguised as humanitarian aid, um, which is really what f- uh, you know, food aid is. And um, so Norman Borlaug went to Mexico, developed this hybrid wheat. Um, in doing so, he, in his in his breeding, he. Um, went against all of the advice of wheat breeders up until that point which was you have to make grain you have to develop grain you have to develop crops for a specific place and this is relevant because what he said was no I'm going to develop a grain that can be used anywhere at all times it just has to have the, um, help of these really expensive and toxic chemical fertilizers and tons and tons of irrigation. Those things can be bought, but here's a one size fits all solution, which, which allows for infinite growth because everyone can have it. At first it worked. He got what he wanted. He got a really, really high productive producing grain, super high yields. It could grow anywhere. It wasn't suffering from the, um, from the pests that were native or that, that had ravaged the the native. Sorry, there's no wheat that's native. Um, it was all brought by the Spanish, but that had ravaged the grain that was growing in that region. Um, then there was a problem happening in the global South, specifically, you know, uh, China and there was a huge concern in the White House that communism was going to spread and that the way to avoid communism was to feed people. I believe there is a quote that says, um, no one becomes a communist on a full belly,
0: yeah.
1: which is like one of, I, I mean, it's priceless um, and uh, deeply untrue. But um, <laughs> um, but anyway, so they were like, "All right, we got to make sure that people don't all become communists. So what are we going to do? We're going to make sure that they're fed, and we're going to be the people that feed them. They will then become um, our allies. And if they speak um, in in sort of if they if they speak in conflict with our political objectives um, or, or somehow do not provide us support, we will just cut off their food supply. So they shipped this grain to all over the the world, but really it was mainly to, um, to India where there was an incredible drought going on. There was a horrible, horrible hunger and um, replaced a, Age-old system of subsistence farming, um, using local landrace grains, which have been developed naturally, hybridized in that region for for generations and generations, with this incredibly petrochemical-dependent, water-dependent hybrid crop. Um, you know, this guy Borlaug went over there and. Over the course of of you know a year or two, like replaced the the wheat crop in India. It made tons of food. You know there was there they had more grain than they knew what to do with. They couldn't. They didn't even have enough bags to fill it. It was just growth. It was massive expansion. People were fed. You know a lot of this also had to do with the fact that population was rising. And like Kissinger and all these people, really love to talk about how do we control the the growth of these of these nations? Um, you know, every all uh, growth outside of the U.S. means that the U.S. is is endangered as far as its stance as the number one power on the planet. Um, so we got to make sure that if people are if nations are growing, they're still dependent on us. Um, it worked, so the. What happened was only a few farmers in the countryside in both Mexico and India were able to afford the technology that was necessary to grow this grain. They were growing so much grain that we didn't need to have as many farmers as we had. All of those farmers lost their self-identity as as people who worked the lands. They lost their relationship to the land. They lost their literal seeds. They lost their form of income. They moved to, to urban centers and lived in slums which where they still live um in a lot of the campesinos from mexico moved to new york you know moved moved places where there was no work that related to their identity um or work at all and still live there today and the the land is entirely corrupted through chemical use and over irrigation. And there is, so there was immense growth and there was also obviously tons of money that was coming into the U.S. from this. Um, mm-hmm. And it the, these, these farmers were now dependent on this grain. Also, yeah. by the way, there was an incredible amount of farmer suicide. Mm. Um, farmers were, which which happens still, it's like an epidemic. I mean, farmers were literally drinking the pesticides that they were indebted to the US for um, because this grain stopped producing. It is not resilient. It had a couple years of good harvests. And the fact is it was not bred for resiliency because that kind of thing takes time. And it's probably not going to be the thing that brings you the highest yields either. But anyway, externalities as a concept is, I think, a really um, excellent example of the, the value of degrowth. And when you look at externalities, it is often coming from um, an imperial power that is really considering human beings only for their labor value or only for their purchasing power. Right. Um, you know, equating humans with their um, relationship to capital growth and not considering the fact that, you know, an extractive way of living is a really short-sighted, it it is actually, I mean, there's kind of an irony to it because um, degrowth will happen inevitably if people continue to act Towards infinite growth, um, but yeah, I, I, I mean that I went off there, but um, all to say, all to say that um, this idea that I think can be taught through the pedagogy of degrowth is that a a reciprocal relationship between human beings and land is actually one that is not only compassionate but the only option. Mm-hmm. Or um, a a potential harmony to be struck, even though I think that that is kind of a utopian idea. Um, and I'm interested in your feelings about utopia, also. But um, not just not just harmony, but like you know, life at all. You know, we are at the brink of like immense, immense catastrophe. Um. Yeah. yeah.
0: So. The, the farmer suicides it's, is such a heartbreaking example that GDP growth really does not mean happiness in any way. Yeah. Um, have you seen Rami? No. You know what it is? No. Okay. It's um, It's on Hulu. It's a TV show about this like first gen Egyptian American um, who lives in Jersey and is, you know, like finding um like his spiritual journey. Anyway, there's this scene in Rami where um it's 9-11 is happening and um the main character, Rami, is like in middle school or something and of course like kids in school start picking on him and he has this like dream slash nightmare that he wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes into the kitchen and he finds Osama bin Laden and he's hiding out in his kitchen in Jersey um and Osama bin Laden grabs strawberries from his kitchen and starts eating them and tells Rami to sit down and he says like do you know how you have these strawberries? And Rami's like, no. And Osama bin Laden says, Egypt, your home country, um, produces the best strawberries. And, not, and then these men, these Western white men in suits came to Egypt and said, you owe us money and you have to pay us some strawberries. And so Egypt started making strawberries and using all of its land to produce strawberries um, so that you can have strawberries in the winter in America. But because Egypt has used everything to produce strawberries, it has no more wheat, like no more grain, like nothing to feed its people. Um, Like Egypt is dying so that you can have your strawberries in the winter and all year long, like beyond whenever the strawberry season is. Um, And that's, that scene was such a good illustration of just imperialism and the, the many ways in which Western powers force other countries to be dependent on them. Um, and when you look at a situation like that, again, you think of it as a campaign. You break down your target. You identify your target. Why is Egypt? making strawberries for the US, like what are the things that um, that are, you know, holding them to do it and some, you know, one of it is obviously the US military, the US is the strongest military in the world, if you don't do what they say, they will come. So then that's immediately, you have to degrow the US military. Um, two, they have, you know, hegemony over the dollar, you have to degrow, um, you know, whatever financial institutions or policies are set in place that like perpetuates this um, U.S. hegemony over other economies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I
1: mean f- that's a great example. I, I'm horrible at watching television, um, um, but I'm comforted to know that that kind of thing is, is on it. <laughs> <That may laughs> um, but, you know, food as an illustration, uh, as, a, as a sort of pathway into those, those um goals that you were just able to pull from it, I have found to be a really, um, like the, the best tool um, to, to sort of call a, a kind of public um, to the table, to, to drive home, not just the way that, that a, um, an extractive imperialist capitalist society and economy affects all of us, but the real the role that we can play in degrowing it. Um, I think that there is a there is a disconnect that happens for a lot of people when we say, okay, I believe in these things. I share these goals, but I don't understand what my role is you know, I I can't control the market. I don't have access to land. Um, you know, I think that's a big one. We, we live in, in New York city. Um, you know, if you have a, a fire escape, you're fortunate. Um, so I think that, you know, even once people go a few steps and they say, okay, I want to be involved when you don't have access to land, you're, relationship to pursuing these goals kind of still falls as a consumer or it falls as someone who shares and promotes information. Um, You know, that can be done in really effective ways, but it can also be done in ways that I think allow the individual to feel absolved Um, And aligned socially with something that they, from a value standpoint, do align with. Um, But the active role that we take as citizens or individuals not related to the state or as consumers still feels like a challenge for a lot of people, um, you know, as far as feeling like they're making a difference to put it plainly. And, you know, you you had used a, a word that kind of stuck with me when we were talking the other day, which is the kind of careerist nature of sort of promoting your values uh, in, in public, um, and, you know, the recapitulation of, I, of of reading or visuals that kind of align you socially with a movement, and, you know, there's something really interesting going on, which is that, like, to, and maybe I'm, I live in a bubble, but to, like, be an anti-capitalist and a Marxist is, like, very cool. And, um, you know, there's a real irony to sort of spouting your anti-capitalism solely through the mode of social media, which is a marketplace. And, you know, I feel very fortunate in that I have been given the opportunity this last year and this coming year to actually um, have a relationship with the land where I'm going to try and grow grain and, and develop and and grow grain trials and really work to promote decentralized, um, modes of grain production in the Northeast. But that is like, you know, a, a totally unlikely opportunity. And I feel like you, you touched on, um, Sort of the some things that we could do as just individuals again, like I really like to think of people not solely as citizens and consumers, um, but as individuals and as members of our own communities, and um, you know, and and thing and sort of things that we have seen up op- like opportunities for us to actually practice theory,
0: um, you know,
1: I was. Again, to to mention Jason Moore, whose, whose term oikos I mentioned earlier, um, he he talks a lot about world ecology, and it's kind of like a scholar, an area of scholarship, and becomes very theoretical. And to name something is 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 absolutely a first step in seeing. But um, have you have you seen actions? Or, or movements recently in your community or or the communities around you that are good examples of ways to enact the the tenets of degrowth and use it as a methodology rather than a idea.
0: Yeah, uh, that's always the hardest question. Um, one because the task is huge, yeah, and overwhelming, um, and at the same time our society and our culture is designed for us to not do the work that we need to do on purpose. I think first and foremost, the most important thing one can do is join an organization because one, you're not alone. Two, that is your community, that is your people, that is your base. That is going to be when a crisis hits, you know who to do what with. Um, and an organization is somewhere where that uh, application of theory can take place um, and, you know, you learn from the results. Yeah, I mean, nothing great is done alone. Um, so, you know, whether that's like you're the crew at your local farm or, you know, an organization that you've joined as a member, like your tenants association or just some community where you are, Connected to these people and accountable to those people, and moving towards a goal together. Um, and then, secondly, I think you know there are people who organize and or, or organize out of interest, um, out of you know wanting to build a better world, and you know, again, like wanting to apply theory. And then there's people who organize because they need to. Um, because their life depends on it Um, because like the air they breathe is um, toxic and polluted from you know the power plants like behind their backyard um so for the former group i think it's important that your work is being informed by the latter group um the people who are you know genuinely and literally on the front lines should be the one that one, are going to have the best solutions because they are closest to the problem. Um, And two, they also need your support. There's this idea that exists outside of the latter group, which is that some
1: people are sort of called to act and to lead and others are not. And like, oh, I'm not political. Um, You know, I don't think that activism has to be inherently, I mean, I think that, it is inherently political, but I don't think activists have to be political. Um, and you know, people who grow up next to toxic water sources, you know, and, and end up devoting their lives to demanding justice in those spaces and demanding, you know, their their basic human right of clean water are not all sort of born with this activist bone in their body. I think that it really drives home how much of a choice it is for so many people. And often those are the ones with the resources, namely time, and sort of in a secondary sense platform to educate on and provide support for people who don't have a choice. Um, and And I use those words specifically because I think that there is a difference between promoting and educating. I don't think everyone has to be an educator, but I do think that is incumbent upon every individual to at least educate themselves. Um, You know, signal boosting is like a a concept that I think has been really quickly sort of co-opted from mutual aid efforts and turned into something that is utilized by people who don't actually know how to become engaged with these kinds of communities that you're talking about. Right. And and I don't mean to hate on it. Like it's it's amazing to sort of witness the um the sort of promotion and and circular nature of of causes and fundraising. Um but I will bring up now the the quote I mentioned to you the other day, which I heard a couple of months ago, um, Gayatri Spivak said that we have to remember the difference between activism and fundraising. That in its simplicity just sort of laid it down in a way that I thought was really, really necessary in this moment. Um, And the thing, one of the things that I like about, about the concept of degrowth in the way that you've talked about it is that it's a, a pathway, you know, you mentioned the red deal, which maybe you can like expand on a little bit, you know, you don't have to like define, define the terms in it. But, um, I actually, I mean, I like it for a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, the name is, is obviously ideological and the green revolution that name was also very ideological and was was sort of uh poised in direct contrast to the red revolution so it's kind of interesting to see here the red deal which as you had written i mean i had again i had not heard of it but it had it was developed in reaction to the green new deal right Um, And it kind of touches on specific ways that we can achieve the shared goals of degrowth and and decolonization and avoiding climate collapse, which are all connected.
0: Mm -hmm. Where to start? Um, Yeah, just to go back to the Green Revolution for a bit. I mean, you and I were talking about this earlier, like defining revolution. Um, But if we were to really define revolution just simply as one class overthrowing another, in a way it was a real yeah. revolution because yeah, absolutely. it was really the a process, the commodification was the process under which agriculture like ceased to become a source of food and culture for humanity and turned into only a producer of raw material for capitalist industry. Yeah, and,
1: agriculture is an economic policy.
0: Right. And it's becoming increasingly distanced from the needs of the people, um, the farmers, the local residents, and the displacement it's cost. And just like the exodus into urban areas is also going to be a daunting challenge for degrowth because like the majority of human population is in urban areas, is in cities, is in in coasts. Um, And so separated from where their food comes from
1: Yeah, I think I was thinking earlier about um, the landless movement in Brazil. And um, what a great example it is of the um, immediate tie between land and a basic for um, sovereignty, Mm -hmm. because it's not in the name, you know, food, agriculture is not in the name. Landless, it's actually the, the absence of something that defines the movement. And what this group of people has been doing and continues to try and do is fight to live on unproductive land, as in land that is not being used, but is often owned by corporations or the state. Mm -hmm. And to live on that land and to work on that land, and to survive without reliance on the state, which was not taking care of them. And they continue to fail and and they try and use use policy, they try and use legislation, they try and use the sort of matrix of the state system to achieve these goals. But because it is inherently contradictory to the survival of the state, to give people land that is not even being used, Mm -hmm. they fail over and over and over again because corporations have the same interest as the state does, which is making sure that people, poor people are reliant on them for the most basic social welfare. Um, But you know, like the Landless Movement is about about finding land to live on and to farm. Um, I, I, struggle with the understanding that for a long time we are still going to have to think about decolonizing our food system through consumerism um we're still going to have to work to educate a public about how they can buy better and that's frustrating but one of the things that focusing on something like degrowth as opposed to just thinking about decolonization reminds me is that it is a process and um, restoration can look a lot like reform as in it happens in steps and it happens over time. And I think the difference is how far are we willing to push the goal? You know, is the goal utopia? <laughs> I'm really like, I'm so, because I'm so personally conflicted about my, my ideas about utopia. And there was a quote in your piece who, who said that degrowth was a utopian project. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about utopia. You know, I think that when you like look at something like the landless movement and some people could be like, that's utopian. What they think they're just going to like walk onto someone's property that they don't own and get to live there and grow their food. Like what kind of utopia do they think they're living in when really they're like, no, no, literally we're just trying to, to not die. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, um, I don't know if the opposite of dystopia is utopia. It might just be like living an, an, a, a, uh, just life where yeah. you have access to the things that you need. Um, and and you had sort of laid out what the concept of autonomy is and autonomous is in your piece, which I thought was really helpful. Um, and maybe we should just like outline here, but it's not the same as individual, yeah. right? It requires a sort of reciprocal, an exchange a a balancing where you which inherently um, requires giving things up, you know, mm-hmm. a sense of like sacrifice.
0: Yeah, autonomy. I think I write that autonomy is different from independence.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
0: it's the ability to govern yourself. It kind of going back to utopia. I feel like if dystopia is like a world full of fear then utopia is one where fear is absent. And I feel like that is a very like autonomous trait um, to be able to live without fear and to be able to govern oneself and even criticize oneself when a mistake is made um, and to correct that moving forward um, and to do so it. So
1: reliant on a community In the way that actually like the true definition of anarchism is similarly like we take care of ourselves by taking care of each other. Exactly.
0: Which really isn't a radical idea. No, it's not. It's come so far from it.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, it's amazing how these words, again, like it really does in so many ways, come back to language, but how these words have been weaponized by a a you know a neoliberal state that is inherently threatened
0: by them Mm -hmm. you know I mean not to simplify but that's really also what the red deal is um bringing us back to a world in which there is autonomy and there is sufficiency and there is care um you know political economy is the study of what is produced and how it is divided. Um, Right now, it is produced by everyone or the majority of the world and divided in the interest of a powerful, concentrated few. Um, You know, we would... The Red Deal, I think, sketches out how we would, you know, transform that model. Maybe this is just from, like, constantly being around organizers and organizing and learning to, like, accept the small victories as they come. But for me, really, the victory is in the process itself. Um, if we never, ever, ever get to a degrowth world, but we have changed like people's hearts and minds and raised consciousness about what it means to be human again, um, like if we have. In the process, like raise the consciousness of ourselves and of others, and also improve the material conditions of as many people as we could have. Then, like that's a win. Um, that in itself is, you know, degrowth in practice. Um, and whether we reach a utopia or not, as long as we believe in it and keep doing it, not because we think we can win, but because it's the right thing to do and what we must do, then, and the more people we get to think that way and start, you know, living their lives and committing it to, you know, collective well-being and responsibility, then, you know, that's degrowth. Yeah, I'm quoting someone like that's complete plagiarism. I just can't remember. Right. Well, whoever they are, thank you,
1: and you know, um, that's why we're here having this conversation to share these ideas.
0: That was Jamie Tyberg in
1: conversation with Lexi Smith. Food Futures is a podcast by Mold Magazine. Thank you so much for listening.